Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, a place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. Today, uh, we're excited to have Clint Coons here of Anderson Advisors. He is one of the founding partners of Anderson. And we're just really excited to have you here, Clint, because you're the expert on asset protection. And it's such an important topic for our listeners and for us. And so we appreciate you being here. And also, we appreciate you working with so many of our students as well. So uh, that's, uh, that's been great. And they've uh, said some really great things about working with you guys. So thank you so much. Good. Thanks. So Clint, um, Mm -hmm. would you mind telling us a little bit about your story of how you got into real estate? Because I know you were an investor yourself, as well as how you built Anderson Advisors. Sure. I got into real estate through indentured servitude. (laughs) My father wasn't a real estate investor. uh, And so when I was growing up, I mean, I had a choice. It was either be involved in sports or I had to go out and work on his property. So I tried to sign up for every sport I could (laughs) and stay actively involved because that meant that I wouldn't have to, you know, get done with school at 2.30 jump in the truck and head out to one of his apartments uh, um, and, you know, rehab it and do all that type of stuff. So that was my, my upbringing. And it really made me interested in real estate. In fact, I wanted to be a, a contractor. And so when I was going to the University of Washington, I was also working as a framer uh, during that period. And I thought that's where my life was going to lead me. I knew, I, I mean, the law was of interest to me because my grandfather was an attorney. And I got to admit, his office was so cool. I'd walk into there, it was this dark office, all these books on the shelf. And it didn't seem like he was ever working. He was always on the golf course, but he said he was getting work done there. So he said, you know, you can golf and bill at the same time. And that kind of intrigued me as well. But the problem is Washington State. I mean, what does it do from October through June? It rains. And, you know, it's not very fun being up on a roof when it's pouring down rain outside. So I had a little scare when I was on, uh, on a roof fixing some uh, bird blocks that somebody didn't put in properly. And I realized, you know what? I don't want to do this full time. And so then I went on to become an attorney. When I got, when I started the practice in 99, I wasn't focused on investing in real estate at that point in time. And when I started the practice, it was about asset protection and tax planning, but we didn't do taxes in-house. And here's the interesting thing. So you start out a practice and I found success relatively quickly because the way I look at things is, you know, people say, you know, you, you were lucky when you got your business started. I've heard this so many times because I went from working out of my bedroom to having an, uh, an office with 35 employees in less than nine months. And people say, that just wow. doesn't happen to anybody. You're right. It doesn't just necessarily happen like that, where you've gone from making maybe $80,000 a year to $300,000 a year in that relatively short period of time. But at the, what I was doing is I was laying the foundation for the business, just like business entities. When we tell people to set those up, maybe before you get your first deal, you're creating that foundation for yourself. So when an opportunity presents itself, you're ready to take action. And an opportunity came along and it was between myself and a competitor that was looking for this business. And I I was able to walk in and say, listen, I've got this, this, and this can address all your needs and I'm ready to start tomorrow and I could step in and run this. And the other guy couldn't do that. He needed 90 days to get up to speed. So I won this contract that really propelled my business. And so you get started and I, and I found success right away. And, and, and I wasn't thinking about real estate. What I was thinking about is reducing taxes because nobody likes to pay taxes. 
You go out there, you can make two, $300,000 a year, and then you have to give a third of that away to the federal government. That stings. So then I started focusing on taxation. How do I reduce my taxes? And so I was able to reduce my taxes down to zero. And so for four years, my partner and I were growing this firm. And we, we had some really good years in there where we'd make, you know, 500, a million dollars. I'd pay zero in federal income tax. And I thought I was the smartest guy in the world. And I would teach events and say, this is what we can do. And you can do this and that. And then I started getting interested in real estate again, because my dad kept telling me, you know, don't invest in the stock market. And he was right. I lost a million bucks in the stock market. Well, I made a million and lost a million within about a seven month period. So it was easy come, easy go. But it just reinforced what my father always been t- telling me. So the problem I ran into is you went to apply for loans and I wasn't bankable. Yeah, I was making really good money, but they don't care how much money you're making. They want to see copies of tax returns. And I'd say, no, you don't. I'd send over a copy of the tax return. They said, well, you make no money. I was like, geez, you can't trust my tax return. I really make money. And so then they assume that you're cheating on your returns, right? Or you're engaging in illegal activity. How do you have money, but you don't pay taxes? And you can't talk to an underwriter to explain it. In fact, most underwriters don't have more than an AA education, so they don't even understand the tax return they're looking at. So it really took me out of the game altogether. And what I realized at that point in time is my desire is to build up a real estate portfolio. And so over the, since about 2008 is when I, nine is when I start, got started investing seriously in real estate. Because up until that time, my tax returns basically precluded me from doing what I wanted to do. And then from there, now uh, it's up to close to 150 properties over seven states, maybe. I, 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 I mean, now it gets to the point where you don't even know how much you have. You just know what the opportunities are. In fact, this year has been phenomenal. Um, in the last three months, I've picked up more real estate than I did probably all three quarters of last year, just in those three months, because the deal flow now is just really starting to hit because people are panicking. And if they want out of property, I'm willing to step in if it's a good deal and they're willing to meet my terms. And I found that that loosening up uh, of the market right now is better, very beneficial. So that's kind of how I ended up where I am today. My passion is real estate. I do it to build legacy wealth. Uh, I practice law because I do like what I do. So when I say the passion is real estate, the passion is also protecting people's assets. I mean, it's something where I enjoy getting up every morning at 4.30 jumping on the computer, you know, reading the Wall Street, uh, and then doing some research and always looking for new and novel ways that if somebody puts a challenge to me, for example, they say, well, if you want to set up an entity in Massachusetts, there's no way you can obtain anonymity. I love those challenges because if you tell me I can't do it, I'm going to try to figure out a way to do it. And then through the combination of putting a land trust together or how you file the entity, then you achieve that result for them. And other people are going out there thinking you can't achieve this result and they keep making the same mistakes along the way. And I'm just walking behind them doing just the opposite and protecting our clients. And that's what makes it interesting. Keeps me motivated. That's an incredible story. And I think the two points that I really want to highlight from it is number one, you have to be looking for opportunities. So you recognize Mm -hmm. them when they show up. Because if you don't get yourself set up, and we tell this to our students all the time, They'll say, well, maybe I should put off investing in real estate for a couple of years. We're like, at least get the education now. So when a good deal falls in your lap, you'll actually recognize it and not just let it pass by. And so that's exactly what you did. You set yourself up to be able to be in such a great position when that, you know, sale or 
big uh, project came up, you were able to jump on it because you recognized it and then you acted. And I think the other thing is like how, how much you probably don't need to be doing Anderson asset protection anymore because you've got your real estate, but you're still here because you love it. And it sounds like it's really uh, helping your, your people, your, your clients get their asset protection and you feel really strongly about that. So I love that too, because passion, you know, when it's involved in your work makes such a difference in, in the level of, I think, of your success. Yeah, it drives you. I mean, it just, it makes it enjoyable. Mm-hmm. If I didn't enjoy it, then I would quit doing it. And so I don't know when that time's going to come. My wife keeps asking me when I want to slow down because I just turned 50. It's like, what do you, why would I want to slow down? It's kind of like when I hit 100 properties, I told her, I said, hey, we're, I'm going to get to 100 properties and, and that'll be it. And now it's at 150. She goes, when is this going to stop? I said, you got to keep setting goals for yourself. My next goal is 500 properties and then we'll stop. I don't know if I'll stop if I get to 500. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I love it. Well, I also love that, uh, you know, that you focused on you know, asset protection and taxes and real estate, right? So you really kind of niche down. And so that's something else that we, you know, that we see as a, um, maybe it's a, a, a focus of people who are very successful, right? You know, the riches are in the niches. And so I love that, uh, you know, you've really kind of focused down your practice on this very narrow area. And I think, you know, I could see that that's probably one of the reasons why you're successful. Yeah, we learned that relatively quickly to stay in my lane. I, I know what I know. I mean, granted, I've made tons of mistakes along the way thinking, all right, well, let's go and do this little business. Like I started a mortgage company back in 2003. You saw what was going on. I saw an opportunity. So I'm going to set up a mortgage company. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to make a ton of money. Ran that for seven, eight months. And then we shut it down. We were making good money, but I was also creating, it was taken away from my core business. So it was a distraction. Number two, it was creating a ton of liability for me because the people that I'd employed, I didn't understand how mortgages, how, what they were doing to generate the income. I just saw the money coming in and then I realized they were putting people into mortgages that weren't in their best interest. It was just done to get a higher commission based upon the certain mortgages. And once my partner and I discovered that within the business, we said, you know what, the liability and risk here and you're not doing well by these individuals isn't worth the extra money we're making. So we shut that company down. But there's been a number of little businesses like that that has distracted me along the way. You know, I set up a, a, a tailor one time where we would go out and I started a company where we go out and, you know, busy executive guys, we'd send out tailors to come out and fit them for suits and shirts because I like that, that type of service. And, you know, again, distraction, didn't make any money out, lost money at it. And so you realize you've got to get narrow and stay what, what motivates you and keep your focus, your eye on the ball. All right. Well, so cool. So uh, we thought, um, you know, today we talk about your specialty area, which is asset protection and something that, you know, any new investor, uh, you know, especially we have a course coming up. And when, uh, when we start the course, one of the first questions is about asset protection and forming LLCs. And I think, um, you know, if we can kick it off with this one question that we always get, which is people sometimes say, well, instead of, you know, setting up uh, LLCs, can I just get insurance uh, and protect my assets that way? Isn't that enough? Uh, what would you say to that? I would say there's a lot of people that took that advice and later on they regretted their decision because let's face it, insurance companies are not in the business of paying out on claims. So they're going to find every way to get out of having to cover you. Not to mention if you're a real estate investor, there are claims that aren't even covered. Many of the claims that may be brought against you are excluded from policies or don't even apply. For example, let's, I mean, look at this, uh, 
time we're in right now. So if you're an Airbnb investor, and this is what's really, I mean, it's forefront in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, everyone's talking about it. All these people got into these properties based upon an expectation of income. They didn't do their numbers right. And now they're sitting back going, wow, I don't have, I'm not turning that property every three to five days like I thought I would be. And so that was able to support that overinflated mortgage I took out. And so here they are sitting there with no income, overinflated mortgage on a piece of property that can't support itself with a traditional tenant they default, what is the lender going to do? Well, they can go after them. And if the property has gone down in value, which right now it's hard to assess the true property value because you can't get a good appraisal. So you may have a deficiency judgment. You may owe the bank more money than they collect from that property. And so as a result, they come after you. Now tell me where the insurance policy is that's going to protect you from a bank that comes after you. It's not going to happen. And when I hear real estate investors tell me, well, I'm just going to go out and buy insurance, my typical reaction is, well, you're not aware of all the different types of claims that could and probably would be brought against you that are not going to be covered. Toxic molds, or actually, we have to go toxic mold. Let's just go COVID right now. That's another claim. You wouldn't be covered under that. So insurance is still important. I still recommend my clients acquire insurance. You can't escape it. In fact, if you don't have insurance, then it's a double-edged sword for you, basically, is that if you set up an entity and you don't buy a policy, then they'll just ignore the entity and they'll still sue you personally mm-hmm. because they'll say that you didn't insure against your foreseeable risk of harm on owning that real estate or somehow somebody could be injured. So you have to do both. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, it happens a lot. Um, you know, the classic example that we use a lot in our events is that there was this individual, she's in her 60s, and she came to one of our asset protection seminars. And this, you know, I would say every third event, I have one of these people in there that bring me a story at a break that's similar to what I'm about to share with you because it's so devastating. And many times they'll stand up and they'll share this story with everyone in the room to make the point that that local attorney who told you you need insurance, he's not a real estate investor. So she bought these multiple properties in Florida, was building up her portfolio, had a few commercial properties worth, I don't know, about six, seven million dollars. Person comes out to wash its windows And while he's washing the windows, he electrocutes himself. He's on a ladder because it got caught up on the line coming into the building. The guy on the ground grabs a ladder. They're both fried. She lost everything. She had to file for bankruptcy. And when she was at the event, she made the point. She said, you know, what they're telling you is so accurate because I've lived it. And now here I am in my 60s starting over when I thought I'd be taking this time to enjoy the fruits of the labor I've put into this. If you've ever applied for for insurance before, if you ever made a claim, you know how difficult it is to get that claim through. And so it's just, you know, 10x that when you're dealing with real estate and you have, you know, these horrendous claims, you know, say a wrongful death, it could uh, exceed your policy limits and then you're left without any protection. Awesome advice. Yeah. You know, you were talking about uh, protecting people's assets. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I were to come to you and I had you know, let's say I had a, a fourplex and I'm just getting into real estate investing and I'm coming to you asking, wondering, okay, how do I protect my assets? Well, how would you kind of structure the, uh, I'm assuming again, we're talking about LLCs. So how would you structure the LLCs? What, what is kind of like the Anderson approach for protecting somebody's assets? So the first thing I want to know is, are you concerned about anonymity? Because this is the base level of analysis. Is once You can't unring this bell. Once your name is out there, it's going to forever be associated with that asset or with that entity you, you set up. And if you tell me, yes, I don't want people to know that I own this property, 
then I would suggest that we start with a structure that has an anonymity layer there. So your name's not associated with it. And, and people will say, well, why is that important? Because attorneys, let's face it, they're motivated by the perception of recovery. That is, if they think that you have assets, then you're worth going after and they're going to invest more time into you. Now, granted, you got an MD behind your name, that's adding two or three extra zeros onto the complaint just by default. But you don't want to make it so easy for them that they know how successful you are because the real estate that you own, if you own it in your own name, easily discoverable. If you set up an LLC, let's say you lived in Oregon or, or California, Washington, whatever, when you create that limited liability company, your name is going to be associated with it as a member or a manager. And if you said to a local attorney, I don't want anybody to know that I have this LLC, set it up anonymously, they will tell you, you cannot do that. They're right. You can't if you set it up the way they're accustomed to setting it up. So what we'll do then is we'll create an entity in Wyoming that your name is not associated with. This is what I re typically refer to as your holding entity. And it's going to hold all of your specific real estate LLC. So if you own property in Washington state, I would then create an LLC in Washington for that fourplex. But that LLC in Washington is going to be owned by the Wyoming LLC. So when we do the, the setup of the Washington LLC and they ask us, who is the member? I give them the Wyoming information. And if somebody were to start digging, it doesn't show back up under your name. And that's key. Now, that adds a little more expense to the, 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 the overall structure. And that's why you got to start with that question. Because if I didn't, I learned this a long time ago. That is, you can, you can make a recommendation to somebody for where they are today, right? You set up this LLC, protect your asset. And don't share with them that other piece. And what happens is that when they have four or five properties and now they think anonymity is important, they, they recognize that value, then they come back to you and say, well, I want the anonymity now. And you have to tell them, well, I can't do it now. It's already been too late. And the first thing you're going to say, well, why didn't you tell me this to begin with? So I learned that 18 years ago, inform people of all of their options. Better yet, just like what you do, you educate people. And that's the same way the basic premise in which we operate is to educate people as to their options, their choices, how entities work, because then it helps you make a better decision, an informed decision. It's no different than when you go to a doctor and he tells you what your different options are for that particular ailment that you may have. And you say, you do option number A, which is do this. You can do option number B, which means take a pill for three weeks, but you can't have any alcohol during that time. You say, well, I'll go back to A then. So uh, you need to know this. What what happens if I uh, if I'm late to the game and I've already bought my fourplex in my name and then I come to you? My name's already out there. What what, what would you recommend for somebody like me who uh, is a little late to the game? Well, that's just the same thing. I mean, even though you may be late to the game, anonymity isn't the end all be all. I mean, it's a smokescreen. So I would tell you, your liability rests with owning that asset. You have two forms of uh, liability you should be concerned about. One, the tenants. Okay, we can spend an hour and a half, two hours, just talking about different ways tenants can sue you. you. You can run into problems with real estate. But first and foremost, the practice that you're engaged in, that is a huge liability generator as well. So you want to make sure that you're protecting that asset from both for, or you and that asset from both forms of liability. If something mm -hmm. happens with the property, they can't sue you. If you get sued and they get a judgment against you, they can't take your property. So I would structure it through a limited liability company. Awesome. And I think one of the things we've heard also is that you often suggest that Umbrella LLC, the one in Wyoming, has a manager 
LLC that's also um, the manager instead of one of us being the manager? Well, okay. So that would be to manage the properties. Correct. Now, when we're talking about individuals, you know, that when they found success, like you guys have been very successful with your investing. And in those certain uh, situations, you're going to bring on a, a management entity to help, you know, consolidate down your uh, tenant experience and managing the properties, and, you know, your CapEx and where you're paying this from bookkeeping wise. But when you're starting out, then you don't necessarily want to jump to that level at first because, I mean, you have one property. I could set up a whole bunch of entities for you. Then you're going to be sitting around going, what do I do with all this stuff? And you're going to call me up and say, I've got this, Clint, help me use it. I don't know how to use it at this point in time, maybe in the future. So one of the things we want to be conscious of as well is that, you know, just because you can set it up doesn't mean you should set it up. We want to make sure that it works for you today, but also create that plan that allows you to grow with it. You don't have to then come back later and say, all right, well, that now that we've changed and we have 10 properties, we need to dismantle everything that we just did here and create these other structures over here. And we'll just, you know, pay the attorney again to do the same work. Maybe that's a better business model for me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain why uh, Wyoming uh, gives you some of that anonymity protection? Yeah, because they want to make money. That's what it comes down to. It's all, it's all in the law, the way they structure their, their uh, reporting requirements. Wyoming doesn't ask for any information on who the members or managers are. Delaware is the same way. Uh, Nevada, you have to do a little more complicated to set it up. So it's, they want to attract people to come to their state and incorporate and set up LLC. So that's why it's that way. Okay. And, and I know that there are, you know, there are other companies that use other states. Um, do you, you know, when you kind of look at the different states like Delaware, Wyoming, Nevada, I know there's a company that also uses Alaska. When you kind of look at those different options, I mean, how does somebody like me choose among those? Uh, and why, you know, do you think Wyoming is better than all those others? Well, I mean, again, we, we look at it from a, a place of asset protection, number one. So we want to make sure that if something were to happen, you were involved in a lawsuit individually and a judgment's entered against you, do you have what is referred to as charging order protections? which means this, they can't take your LLC from you. They can demand that you pay them money if you decide to take out a distribution, which of course you would never take out a distribution if you're told you got to pay that money over your creditors. So you just let it stay inside your LLC until that loss, that judgment disappears or they're willing to settle. So that's the first level. Nevada, Alaska, Wyoming, Delaware, they're all the same when it comes to that charging order protection. Then the second level is, do you want anonymity? So if you're already willing to go to another state to set up an entity, then you need to then evaluate what are the other benefits that come with using that state. So you brought up Alaska. Alaska does not offer anonymity. So you lose that aspect. That, that is a key benefit, as I just talked about. So if I was structuring someone, I would definitely go with Wyoming for that anonymity if it's single families or residential. Nevada, I don't touch it any longer because in order to obtain anonymity, you need to use what is referred to as a nominee manager of your LLC. And that and my partner Toby's done that for years. But the problem is with banking now, it makes it difficult to set up a bank account for that entity because they look online, they see this guy named A.T. Mathis, and they look at you and they say, who the heck is A.T. Mathis? They, they see Clint sitting in front of them. So that's really uh, precluded Nevada from most of my structuring. And then 
if you're looking to scale up and you're going to go into larger projects and we're looking at dealing with a portfolio lender or certain Freddie Fannie stuff that's over 10 million, then we're going to use Delaware because those types of loans or lenders are more comfortable with a Delaware setup than they are with a Wyoming setup. Hmm. And this just comes from, you know, years of experience working with clients, my own structures of dealing with these types of financing situations and discerning which entities they like and which ones they don't. Very cool. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now, we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close the deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semiretiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. Also wanted to give a shout out to Joe Weitzel of Northwest Commercial Lending for being a sponsor of the show. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to get a loan for a commercial property for less than a million dollars, good luck. Most commercial loan brokers don't deal in small loans. And this is where Joe and his team shine. They help investors find a commercial loan no matter the size. And they actually love working with new investors and helping them grow their portfolios. So the next time you're in the market for a commercial loan, be sure to reach out to Joe and his team by emailing them at semiretiredmd at nwclending.com. Now back to the show. Um, and then we've heard some, some companies, and I know you guys as well, sometimes use land trusts. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to us what, under what circumstances you suggest in land trust? Well, I use a land trust when people are concerned about the due on sale clause. So if, if they're worried, because you know, a lot of property, you know, it's encumbered because you're leveraging for that, for that return. And you want to put it in an LLC and have this asset protection. But you, you hear that if you move it into the limited liability company, the lender can accelerate the note. Now, not all lenders are going to accelerate notes when you put property into an LLC. In fact, I, can't, I don't know. In 20 years of experience, the few times that I, it came up, it had to do with the owner you know, not paying the mortgage, not paying property taxes, something stupid like that. But lenders just don't go out there and say, you know what, we're going to take these uh, properties back because we want to have properties on our books and foreclosures on our books because those look better. So that's not a driving concern for me. But I understand that for some individuals that are so adverse to risk, they want to minimize that potential. So what we'll do is we'll transfer that property into a land trust, which gives a perception to a lender that you set it up for estate planning purposes. And, and so they're, they're accommodating when it's done for estate planning purposes. And the reason why they have that assumption is that it's a trust. And most people think of trust as living trust. And they don't understand that with a land trust, you can take that beneficial interest it's, and you can transfer it to, uh, to another entity or another person. And that is not recorded anywhere. No one knows about that. So the land trust has its uses. So we'll use it for uh, minimizing the due on sale clause or the acceleration clause if people are concerned. In certain realty transactions in states and counties, you need to be aware about transfer taxes. Let's say you're in Florida and you want to move a property 
from your name into an LLC. It's encumbered by a mortgage. It's a Freddie mortgage. Freddie allows you to do this. They will not accelerate a note when it's transferred into an LLC on residential property. So you go down, you file your deed. Well, you'll get hit with what is referred to as dock stamps in Florida. They tax that transaction because there's debt on the property. Well, a way to work around that is to use the land trust. Put the property first into a land trust that avoids the dock stamps and then move the trust into the LLC. Because the trust by itself doesn't provide the asset protection. That's why I keep telling you, you got to put it into the LLCs because if anything happens with the trust, they're going to sue the owner of the trust. And you don't want to be sitting there as the owner of that trust. You want your LLC to be there. And the trust doesn't file a tax return. So we use them uh, in a targeted manner for individuals. And there's other things as well. California, and people want to help minimize the franchise taxes, we'll use it in some various strategies. It's a very versatile uh, tool that you should be aware of and have in your arsenal when it comes to structuring. That mean, uh, so we, we knew about the Florida stamp tax, but mm-hmm. does that mean it also works for uh, Pennsylvania? Because I understand there's also a tax in Pennsylvania <laughs> that uh, some of our students have brought Good to our attention. Good old Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. I'm from Pennsylvania. <laughs> okay. Well, it does not work in its current form. So this is the, this is the challenge, right, that I like. About... 12 years ago, 13 years ago or so, this came up. They said, you can't use land trusts in Pennsylvania because it's going to result in a taxable transfer. I'm like, okay, you're right. That's what it says. But do you understand how a trust is created and what goes into it and what you can do with the trust? So I came up with a solution to that. I found a way in which you can take a piece of property in Pennsylvania and put it into a trust without having a reassessment or having to pay that tax on the transfer. I'm not going to share that with everyone online because it's not something that I want to be widely known because I've been using it successfully for the past 13 years. Now, I can't say I've used it successfully without a hitch because I have come across some problems in the last year in using this strategy in that Pennsylvania has a very archaic approach to trust law and what they consider to be a an exempt transfer. And in the last year, they've done this money grab on property transfers. And I had to go back and make some tweaks to my trust because it worked for 12 years without a hitch. And then they decided, well, because there's a certain clause in your trust that states if the grantor is incapacitated, the assets could potentially be used for someone other than him. That makes it a taxable event. I mean, just something that it's so unique to Pennsylvania, like you brought up, but it does work. You just have to know how to set it up. Interesting. Yeah, really I think interesting. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, you know, you could you could just tell from this conversation that, you know, he looks at everything as kind of part of his arsenal, and then each state presents different unique challenges, and then he said, okay, he just reaches into his arsenal to kind of figure out how to how to solve the problem in each state. I think it's yeah. pretty cool. But we should tell. definitely skip to California, I think now, because yeah. we're, we're there. Let's, let's talk about let's California. Let's talk about California <laughs> and the franchise tax. And for the, for the listeners who don't know about California, mm-hmm. uh, my understanding is that if you have an LLC and it could be an out-of-state LLC, you have to pay a franchise tax for each uh, LLC. Every single year. Every single year. Correct. You do. And that is a problem with California is that they take the position that if you own an interest in a limited liability company and that LLC operates in any state other than California, we're actually in a different universe. 
conducting business. It's taxable in California because it's conducting business there. So it's a way for California to generate money. And so this becomes a problem for investors because they want the optimal asset protection structure, which would be to put one property per LLC. But then when you start doing the math, if you have 10 LLCs, it's going to cost you $8,000 a year to maintain that structure. And so many times what I found is it's, it's a mental thing for people. They look at that $8,000 as a cost. And really, you should look at it as an investment, an investment into protecting your own assets. So if something were to happen where a lawsuit is brought against you, like what happened to one of my clients and they're seeking $25 million because of a negligent individual where one guy lost two legs and the other guy lost one leg who was hurt. And my client had nothing to do with it, but it didn't matter. He had deep pockets or perceived to have deep pockets. So they're going after him. And because of the way we structured him using the anonymity and the LLCs the way we did, he was able to walk away for his policy limits. Where his father, who owned this building, again, had nothing to do with what went on, but the fact the building was located there where the guys got pushed up against it and squashed, they said, well, you're liable as well because you own buildings. He wasn't as fortunate. He had to pay out of pocket because everything was in his own name. And my point on this is that paying the franchise fee for California for him was not an issue. And after we all of a sudden done the dust settled and he saw what happened to his dad and he saw how he got off um, for his policy limits, he told me, he said, you know what? I would gladly pay you three, four times over what you originally charged me to set up my structure. And it wasn't an inexpensive structure. It was about $18,000 because he has a lot going on. And he said to me, he goes, you know, come out to my, one of my clubs. He goes, you can have anything you want. You like Opus? Because I told him I like Opus wine. He goes, you can have all the Opus. So I went out there. I never thought I would turn away Opus, but on your fourth or fifth bottle of Opus, it wasn't just me, okay? So you might think I'm an alcoholic. No, I had some <laughs> friends with me. I see. Uh, you're like, that's enough. Right? <laughs> Again, but that just shows you, you know, how appreciative you are. You don't realize how much or what it's going to be like until you're in that situation. So for California people, first off, keep in mind that that is an investment to protect yourself. And that's how it should be viewed. Now, if you want to talk about how you work around that, because still you want to get around paying 800 bucks because you're like, the house is only worth 50,000. Well, then what you would do is you would structure it through LLCs, but then we would have trust brought in to hold the LLC. Because the thing that they look at is, you know, do you own the LLC? And yes, you may own one limited liability company in California, or you have an interest in an out-of-state one that could be subject to that franchise fee. But then we have it owning a trust and then that trust would own all the various other LLCs that you have. And that way you avoid dragging those other LLCs into the state of California. My partner, Toby, has actually argued this before and he's worked a few times. He's been successful with the FTB on that because of the way the law is written, it has to be an individual. Now, if you just don't want to pay the franchise fee on anything, we have, we have a lot of people that just say, hey, I take uh, exception to this. My LLC is not conducting business in California. And they have a disregarded LLC set up. So they all flow down to them and they don't get reported anywhere. And they're willing just to roll the dice and say, hey, if it happens, it happens. But I'm not going to pay them money on activity that has no connection back to California. So there's multiple ways you can approach it. You can even bring in what is referred to as a Nevada Asset Protection Trust, which is a little another layer that definitely solves that issue for you, the way that could be created. So you just got to be creative in your planning. Okay, cool. 
I mean, that kind of ties into what about L- series LLCs? So not specifically, obviously, for California, but I know a lot of people want to use Texas uh-huh. series LLCs and hold properties that are in multiple states under those. So what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on series? Well, so, I mean, just to tie back back to California, you know, California, they won't recognize a series LLC for asset protection purposes, but they will recognize it for taxation purposes. I mean, you can't have it both ways, but obviously that they think they can in that state. I think the, the series LLC is a phenomenal structure and it works great for holding residential real estate or for flipping properties. And if you happen to be investing in the state that recognizes it, such as uh, Oklahoma or, or, or you brought up Texas, then I set those up all the time. I set up the series LLC. It used to be, uh, we didn't set them up that often because we ran into problems with title companies not accepting title, but that has now since changed and and they're more accepting of using cells. So what it gets you in using a series LLC, number one, it minimizes your, your investment for asset protection. So you're only setting up one company and then you're creating these cells as you go along and they're treated like separate LLCs, but you don't have to register them anywhere. It, it just, you know, we set them up for my, my assistant, Deborah, probably sets up 20, 30 of these things a week for our clients where we just create a simple little agreement that they have to sign and now it has its own independent legal existence. Where you run into challenges, though, is if you try to run an active business through these LLCs, then it becomes more difficult to get a bank account set up. You got to get a DBA, and it just it just becomes a problem in and of itself. So I use them, as I stated, just to hold residential real estate, or if somebody wants to flip property, I think they work great for that. But there's a certain way you have to set them up. It's definitely not something that if you're a do-it-yourselfer that you should attempt on your own because you will screw it up and it'll come back to bite you. That's great that you led us right to our next question because <laughs> the, uh, you know, well, first of all, I love how you talk about this as investments, right? I mean, it really is an investment. You know, what I always say is that it only takes one, right? It mm-hmm. only takes one situation where it could just make that investment worth it, right? And so let's talk about this investment because I think pe- what people do is they tend to, maybe gravitate towards a series LLCs because they perceive it as maybe lower cost. And maybe it is. Um, and then there's your do-it-yourselfers, right? The DIYers. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us about, you know, somebody who's coming to you and who says, well, I want to do this by myself. What would you say to somebody who's, who's proposing that they're going to do it themselves? I would say, I'll tell you what, I will take my card because you'll be calling me within about 18 months. So it's going to come back on you. It just, it doesn't make sense to try to set something up. It's not in your lane. It's not in your space. You don't know what you don't know. And you're going to figure it out along the way. You're going to screw things up and you could cloud your title. You could blow your asset protection, of course, if you do it the wrong way. So, so why would you even attempt it? Where do you think you're saving by creating your own LLC? I remember there was a, a gentleman I met in South Carolina and he said, you're just one of them slick talking lawyers. I don't need none of your services. I said, why is that? He said, because it's easy. You just file this stuff right on the Secretary of State. And I've done 18 of them. Show me. So he pulls them out. And all he had were the articles of organization that he had filed. And I started looking through them. I said, well, why did you set this up again? He said, for asset protection. Now, I've been listening to you. This is what you told me to do. I said, okay, great. But you know, you check the box right here that states that the members of the LLC will be liable for all the debts and obligations of the limited liability company. You just nullified that by checking this box when you filed it. Why did you do that? 
Guy looked at me, goes, well, it was a box. I figured it needed to be checked. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not paying attention. It all comes down to education, right? Anything that you do, it can be an expensive education for you to learn something. Just take investing in real estate, for example. You know, I see a lot of people that want to get started in real estate and they choose not to educate themselves. And you're right, you don't have to educate yourself to go out and buy real estate, but then what happens? I mean, when I started investing, I chose not to educate myself by going to someone who has experience. I was uh, interviewed, oh, I forget the name of the magazine. This was, uh, no, actually it was a radio show I was on yesterday. And we were talking about this, uh, this, this idea of getting educated. And I was explaining how when I went out to get that first property, I did not seek any, I figured I could do it all on my own. And I bought it out of state. I bought it in Indianapolis. And I didn't get paid for five months because I didn't really know what I was doing. I bought this property and the manager was stealing from me. So it was an expensive experience. In fact, I just sold that property last week and I sold it for the exact same amount I paid for it in 2010. That's how bad of an investment wow. I'd made back then when I bought this out-of-state property. And so, you know, investing into yourself through education, you're going to save yourself so much money because you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, associate with somebody, basically it becomes like a mentor and they'll teach you these types of things. You just don't want to go out and embark on this on your own, Same, especially with asset protection because you have so much to lose if it's done wrong. Yeah. Totally agree. Something we always talk about, I mean, invest in your education. I mean, there's people always say, uh, you know, about our course, uh, they might say like, well, you know, uh, should I wait to take the course when the market turns and the market's better because we're in a recession right now? It's it's never too, never too early to start your education. So let me me see how that works. So um, (laughs) when do you start investing in the stock market? After it's already run up? No, you need to start learning how to invest in the target before it goes up so you know how to spot the trend so you can make the move ahead of time. Same thing with real estate. I mean, what you guys are teaching people, I mean, this is an opportune time to invest. Do you know where the deals are, how to find the deals, and then more importantly, how to put them together? Because you talk about buying real estate with no money. People are like, you can't do that. Well, sure you can if somebody's taught you how to do that. And those deals are going to start hitting more and more now as we go forward. Right. And having the team, it's all about relationships and it takes a lot of time to form that team and form those bonds. Correct. And it makes it easier, I think, when you have a sounding board, someone you can talk to, to help advise you and coach you along the way. Because a lot of times what I found with with people, self-doubt starts creeping in, number one. Or number two, they're taught the fundamentals and then they disregard the fundamentals because they're not finding a deal that lines up with the numbers. And they're just like, I got to get into real estate because everybody's doing it. And so you make a bad investment mm-hmm. and then it's going to cost you down the road. For sure. For sure. Well, this has been a really awesome uh, you know, interview having you here. Um, you know, We always close our uh, podcast with two questions. Uh, you know, As you know, our podcast is called Rich Doc, Poor Doc. And so... Our question for you is, what is your definition of rich? So my definition of rich would be uh, fulfillment in life. It does not have to do anything with money. It has to do with your personal you know, self-awareness and well-being. And if you've reached a point where you're happy, then I would say that's a life you know, well-lived. If you have children, you've raised your children to, to be productive members of society, and your wife still loves you, all right, then... You've hit it. 
That's funny. We were talking uh, with you obviously earlier about your portfolio and you know your next goal being 500. Mm-hmm. But one thing that we learned this year at Tony Robbins is fulfillment is both growth and contribution. Mm-hmm. And growth means that you're always setting new goals and you're always learning new things. Right. And that's just, that's what it takes to be fulfilled. And so it makes sense that you are always developing new goals. Well, when I played football in high school and the coach told us one time, because we were doing really well and we were having phenomenal seasons and you get a little cocky, right? When you know, you're mm-hmm. like the top of your game, they came out and he beat us up really bad one day at practice. And he said, I just want you to know one thing. He said, when you're green, you grow. When you're ripe, you rot. Said you always want to be growing and stay green, mm-hmm. and so I've kind of I've never forgotten that. And uh, like you said, moving and keeping those setting those goalposts out there to challenge yourself, I think is important. That's awesome. Yeah, love that. So then, uh, our next question is: uh, If you could give us uh, one mindset, habit, or strategy that separates a rich person from a poor person, I think it's how they approach challenges in life. So right now we're facing this pandemic. And you have two ways to approach it. You can either embrace it and see the opportunity in what is here, or you can choose to shrink back in yourself, blame other people for it, and say, it's, you know, my life is miserable because of this, and you do nothing with this. And that's one of the things that I've noticed with, with small business owners that I've been working with is that, you know, a good portion of them that are in this space right now are looking at this and saying, hey, this isn't such a bad thing. This is a really good thing because it's giving me the opportunity now to change my business, retool it, make it into something that's going to be better when everything opens up. And the other mindset is, it's not, you know, this is just horrible and they find fault with everything and they can't get out of their own way. And, you know, those types of people, they're going to be out of business for sure when, when things start to open back up because they've allowed themselves, they put themselves in there mentally. That's kind yep. of the way I've always looked at it. Totally agree. It's all about mindset. Love that. It really is. Thank you. That was, right. Those were really great points. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Clint. This has been uh, so informative. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time uh, to educate us. Uh, it's been awesome. And if somebody wants to uh, work with Clint at Anderson Advisors, uh, we will leave a link in the show notes so you can uh, reach out to him. We definitely recommend uh, reaching out to him if you guys are getting into uh, real, real estate and buying your first rental. You want to be sure you're protecting your assets. Great. Thanks right. for having me on, guys. It was I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you, you. Clint. The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.